Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The loudest, the biggest, the brashest. New York is its own character in every play. The bad thing about New York is the pressure. They're always under pressure. Here are the stories about those plays. It's New York Accent with Damon Amendolaro. I regret not having at, at that time gone after those games because I think it really hurt me, uh, my future, going forward, to be honest with you. You know, people look at your record, they, just like the other day, I think, in the New York paper, it had me listed as, you know, a record of like 66 and 61. We were 107 weeks. And uh, I think that made a big difference. And then the perception that there was there was more problems than there probably really was never really helped. St. John's basketball is back in the headlines and expectations are bigger now than they've been in two decades. Legendary Rick Pitino, a man who's taken three different schools to a Final Four, has given the Johnnies a jolt. The last great era in school history happened under Mike Jarvis. By the time he took over in 1998, the program had stalled out. Lou Karnasekis golden era of the 80s began collecting dust like that top shelf can of Goya beans at the corner bodega. But Jarvis restored the winning to Queens. Rugged teams featuring NBA star Ron Artest and college standouts Eric Barkley and LeVar Postel filled the garden. These were New York kids winning in a very New York way. Forget Flash. They were street brawlers who backed down to no one and even tussled with each other in a very bombastic old Big East. The last time St. John's won the Big East tournament, the last time they made an Elite Eight, the last time they were a two-seed and a three-seed in the NCAA tournament, all under Jarvis. They made the big dance three times in four years and then won the NIT, but it was far from easy. And because of it, Jarvis is sometimes forgotten. The NCAA began hounding the program. Critics grew louder. And when it ended, Jarvis was pushed out just six games into the 03-04 season. The first ever Big East coach fired during the year. And before all of this, he had a front row seat to Knicks legend Patrick Ewing in high school. If Patino would like some insight into the labyrinth that is coaching St. John's, Jarvis has the roadmap filled with rips, tears, and coffee stains but he's also the last winner the school had. This is Mike Jarvis's New York accent. I am blessed. Thank you. How are you? Doing great. Thanks so much for joining us. And your story begins in Cambridge in Massachusetts, just outside of Boston, obviously the home of Harvard. And it is a time of the 50s and 60s when you're growing up that I'm sure you're seeing a lot of changes in society, a lot of changes in Boston, a lot of changes in college and sports happening. What's that era like as you're growing up in Cambridge during those years? Well, you know, it's it was one of the best times that I think anybody could grow up. It was when America was truly great, uh, when uh, you know, communities like Cambridge, um, you know, they were uh, just so together. Everybody took care of one another. Everybody looked out for one another. Schools were, uh, were great. Um, just a, a great place to grow up. And the neighborhood I grew up in was 
uh, was totally uh, integrated. It was uh, there were black kids, white kids. I mean, every kind of kid you want to name, and we all got along. And uh, we played ball uh, from morning till night. We had great teachers. Like I said, you know, it's just a, a different time, a great time to grow up. So from the outside, we hear a lot about the racial strife that affected Boston in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, etc. You never really felt that then. You you were in a, a pretty cozy cocoon in, in Cambridge with all types of races that mixed together, and they did so well. Well, Cambridge, you know, a lot of people, you know, you talk about, you know, people say, where were you born? And I always say I was born in Cambridge. A lot of people say I was born in Boston. But Cambridge and Boston were like two different worlds separated by the Charles River. You go across the bridge and all of a sudden it's like you're in another country. Boston was very separate, very segregated. Um, and, you know, you couldn't go from one neighborhood to another without sometime fearing for your life. Uh, Cambridge was totally, totally opposite. Um, the whole city was basically uh, made up of uh, homogeneous groupings. And, you know, like I said, the, the one common thing most of the neighborhoods in Cambridge had in, in common was the fact that the parents and the people were from that. Uh, we're, we were poor, poor folks, uh, but yet that financially poor, but rich in so many other ways. So Cambridge was a, a, a special place. And yes, it was somewhat like living in a little bit of a bubble. Um, you know, so they, and uh, very, very different from Boston. But, you know, we experienced a lot of what was going on in Boston and around the suburbs as we traveled around the cities and states playing basketball. You end up playing high school hoops in Cambridge and then end up taking over the program as well. And it just so happens this intersects at the time where the great Patrick Ewing enrolls. And so our New York audience absolutely knows all about Patrick Ewing's Knicks career, but how about before that? They know about his Georgetown career. How about before that in his high school career? What were your first impressions of a young Patrick? Well, the first time I met him, he was so shy, he didn't even want to speak, and uh, he was introduced to me. In fact, his his, his class, uh, which he, when he was in junior high school, was taking their physical edu education classes in my building, in my gym. And uh, his teacher was a guy by the name of Steve Jenkins, and he said, "Coach, I want you want to help help you help this guy learn how to play basketball." I said, "Great." I looked at him, this tall, skinny kid, and I said, "Steve, why do you want him to play?" He says, "Well, you know, I really want him to make some friends, and I thought basketball would be the best way for him to do it." That's how he started playing basketball. But then he just took a liking to it. The game liked him, and uh, he worked so hard and just grew. Went from 165 pounds as a sophomore to 235 pounds as a senior. Went from a kid who, you know, every time he ran down the court, I think he fell when he first started. But by the time he finished high school, he was the best player in the country. And, uh, you know, history has obviously been written by guys like Patrick Ewing. We've heard stories that it was hard going on the road for Patrick when he played because he was so dominant, he was so tall, and it was not always a time of racial tolerance. How ugly could it get for Patrick when you guys played road games? Well, you know, I wrote a screenplay. I'm, I'm hoping to have maybe someday have it on, on, on the big screen about some of the trips that we took. Uh, we had, we've had windows, bricks thrown through windows of us, a yellow school bus. We had tires slashed. We had fights. I mean, it seemed like in every game there were fights in the stands. There were people at times, uh, fans uh, dressing up in gorilla outfits, throwing banana peels on the, on, on the floor at, and it got really, really ugly when he chose Georgetown over Boston College and, you know, back back then. So um, 
yeah, he endured so much. Uh, but you know what? The 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 worse things got, the better he got. The the more he got knocked down, the faster he got up. And uh, that's why there's only there's only been one Patrick Ewing. Yeah, those types of incidents can be traumatic for anybody. Was that because Patrick was so good, he was so dominant? Or did that type of racial resistance meet any black players at the time? Well, it was mainly directed toward a player like Patrick because he was so dominant and so were our teams. I mean, you know, no matter what arena or gym we went into, we sold it out. I mean, including the Boston Garden. So, you know, Patrick was a once, once, once in a lifetime kind of player. And people just, I mean, they just had to see him play. And and needless to say, because of all the racial tensions that were going on around us, they sometimes carried over, many times carried over into the gym. Yeah, and Patrick, known to be aloof at times, maybe a little standoffish, hard to, to get to know intimately. Do you think that maybe that was informed by, as a young adult, having this type of hate thrown at him? Oh, no, make no mistake about it. Um you know, and I mean, we would have to sometimes force him, you know, to, to conduct interviews and everybody in the world wanted to interview him. And he interviewed with most people and did, ended up doing a great job. Uh, I think that, it, you know, I, as much as I respect John Thompson, I just wish that maybe a little bit, things had been handled a little bit differently when he was in college in terms of his media presence. Cause I think that, you know, I think he was missed. Uh, there was a, there was a misconception and he was not perceived as being the, 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 the gentle giant that he was. Yeah, that is interesting because John Thompson was larger than life, and he carried the Hoyas kind of happy to be the villain. And that probably turned more negativity than needed on Patrick at, at times. How would you have advised a head coach to have handled Patrick at that level? Well, like I said, you know, um, I could advise, but I, I had obviously nothing to do with what would happen after high school. I know in high school, like I said, we we would let Patrick know, hey, Patrick, this is something we really need to do. We need to interview with, with these folks, whether it be the New York Times or the Washington Post or with Sports Illustrated, whatever it was. And these are the reasons why. And I think, once again, it may be a little different approach had been taken. I think people, you know, perception of Patrick would have been entirely different. And then when he went to the Knicks, one of the first commercials that they had him do with, I mean, it was, I remember it was a commercial, a sneaker commercial, and he was uh, King Kong, so it was bleak. He was climbing the Empire State Building. And that was, the, I think, the, one of the worst things that, that could have happened to him because it just, once again, fed into a lot of those stereotypes. He was anything but King Kong. He was a, he was a king on the court, but he wasn't King Kong. So in other words, it could have been helpful for Patrick in college to maybe not view the media all as antagonistic, negative, and the enemy, and said, pick pick some spots to do some places where people can learn about you, where you can maybe not worry that it's going to be a hit piece or negative or something like that. Absolutely, because we know that, um, you know, I mean, at times news can be fake. And, um, you know, and if, if, if the media gets to a position where they don't really want to help you, then obviously they're going to hurt you. So, uh, uh, you know, you have to, like I say, you have to try to deal with uh, with the media in the most positive way you can. Your success with Patrick at in Cambridge led to your first head coaching job at BU, Boston University, and you guys make the NCAA tournament. You've become a hot commodity. You go back to the NCAA tournament. You're having 
great success in D.C. at George Washington. And there's overtures of you leaving and bigger programs trying to hire you. You kind of hold your ground and you're not going to leave until it's the best spot. And ultimately, St. John's comes calling. What made St. John's appealing where the other stops were not? Well, I think uh, proximity had a lot to do with it. Um, one of the main people, in fact, the main person that was recruiting me for St. John's was Lou Carnaseca, who I served with on the um, uh, National Association of Basketball Coaches Board. In fact, I used to sit next to Lou, and sometimes he'd turn off his hearing aid, and I would be his interpreter. But uh, So I think the fact that Lou Carnaseca was recruiting me to St. John's had a lot to do with it. And it was really a change that uh, I felt was 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 right at that time. What was the allure of Lou Carnesecca? Why was that impactful for you? Why, when he reaches out, does that really touch you? Well, you know, it's funny. Lou called me and he asked, he says, "Hey, you know, we got to we're trying to replace, uh, you know, Fran Fischella." And I said, um, "You know, why don't you call my assistant, Bill Harriet?" And we talked about Bill Harriet for about an hour. And then the next day he calls me back and says, you know, I really like what you said about Bill, but I think we want you. And just the, I think the fact that, you know, you're talking about a guy who was never recruited coming out of high school as a player. And, and basically GW was the first who had ever recruited me as a coach. Uh, it was very, very uh, flattering, very attractive. And, and I also knew that Fran Fischella had put together a great foundation. He had some good players coming back, some good players coming in. And it might be a situation that fit me and my style. And uh, my wife and I said, you know what, let's give it a shot. Uh, you know, yeah, only live once, so let's, let's give it a shot. We did. Louie is so influential in college basketball in general. Obviously, he's influential at St. John's to the highest level. And there's something about Louie that fans adore, media adore, players adore, and like you said, fellow coaches adore. What, what do you think it is about, about Louie that – that connects with everybody. Well, I think first of all, Louis is and Louis, he always has been a, a very personable person, uh, very humble, uh, and yet very, very successful. And uh, you know, just the way Louis Louis speaks, and you know, you, you always get a feeling that you know he's definitely in your corner, and uh, he's a guy that's one of the around, and uh, this is one of the nicest guys you're ever going to want to meet also one of the most successful coaches we ever lived. You take the job, you're welcome to St. John's. It's a good roster, as you say. You guys are set up potentially to win. What is your first wow New York moment? Could be sports, on the floor, off the floor, whatever. When you land in New York, you go, okay, th this is different. Well, when we first came to New York, we had to uh, live in an apartment in New York City, and that was quite an experience. In fact, that almost drove my wife out. But uh, she's, a, she's tough. She hung in there, and we got used to that. And, uh, you know, and of course, the, the way folks drive in New York, I mean, we, we had bad drivers in Boston, Cambridge, but nothing compared to the way folks drive in New York. So <laughs> took a, took, that took a little bit getting used to. And then, of course, just the cost of living. I mean, my Lord, I mean, you know, more than half of what you make, you know, you, you give away. So you think you're getting a pay raise, and you might be getting a pay cut. <laughs> but um, unless you're making the kind of money they're making now. But uh, but nevertheless, uh, we made great friends. You know, I've got some friends for life like Don Hazleton, Sam Albano, and, you know, and Tommy Flanagan. Just a, we had a very small knit group of 
close, close friends that we got to spend a lot of time with over the years. Uh, Joe Jaima, who was an attorney and a graduate of St. John's. It seemed like, you know, all the people you meet are somehow connected to St. John's. So it, um, you know, it was, it, it was a very interesting transition. And, and I think the first time I met with my team in the locker room, you know, Ron Artes says, hey, coach, he says, do you think we can win it all? And, uh, you know, I said, Ron, I wouldn't be here if I didn't. So, um, you know, and he ended up being obviously one of our, you know, and, and one of the best players ever played St. John's. I've had a chance to, to chat with Ron a couple of times, and he's really thoughtful. He really He really considers the question, and he speaks from the heart. And I think people have this idea that Ron is the guy from the malice of the palace and, you know, a short circuit. There's certainly a part inside Ron that he's had to work on himself through, but he he's such a fascinating individual. When you first meet Ron and you start to get to know him, what's what's your sense of the type of person, the type of player that you're you're inheriting? Well, the first thing that from that very first meeting is that I know Ron is gonna be totally upfront with you. He's gonna be honest. Uh, to a fault. Uh, he's going to tell you what he thinks. Uh, he'll wear his passions on his sleeve. But what you learn of it, of this ultimately is that every day he comes to work. And uh, he takes pride in his, his effort, his work. He takes pride in one thing more than anything else, and that's winning. And, you know, I put him in the category of, of, of some of the greats that I've seen over the years, I mean, I started out watching Bill Russell, the greatest winner of all time. I uh, worked with Sat Sanders, who played on a lot of those world championship teams. Coach Patrick Ewing, Ramil Robinson, uh, guys like that that were only concerned about one thing, and that was winning. And that was the thing that I really, really admired about Ron. And, uh, you know, he would do whatever it took. I mean, he would cover a point guard uh, in a game, the same game, he'd cover a center. And that the at one time he'd be using his quick feet, the other time he'd be using his muscle. So uh, he knew, not only knew how to play, but he knew how to win, and he knew what it took to win. He was a proud Queens product as well from Queensbridge, which is as tough and gritty as it gets. What was your sense of Ron and other players that you were coaching that were from New York City? How were they built differently, compete differently, maybe needed to be coached differently? Well... The one thing, you know, we had a, uh, we had quite a few. In fact, at times I often wondered if we had too many kids from New York City. But, uh, you know, those first couple of teams, I mean, you've got Ron Artest, you've got Anthony Glover, you've got Eric Barkley, you got, you know, all those guys uh, basically from New York City. And, you know, and, and the one thing they also had in common is they played at Riverside Church for Ernie Lorch and my, one of my assistants, German players. So they knew how to play. They knew how to win because that's all Riverside did. So you knew you were getting winners. You knew you were getting kids that were fundamentally sound. And in this day and age, if you can get kids with good fundamentals and that really know what winning is all about, you got a chance to be very successful. And, you know, in, in 90, that 98, 99 season, we should have gone to the Final Four. If uh, Tyrone Grant doesn't bust his hand up, I think we end up in the final four that year. And the next year, um, we got beat, not, I don't think, on the court as much as we got beat down off the court by the NCAA as they were chasing after certain kids around the country, including a couple of our guys. 
what could be the negative of having too many New York City kids on one team? Well, I say that, and then yet I don't. I mean, I don't think you could ever have too many kids from any one city. But I think sometimes, you know, you, just the variety and the diversification uh, in players. Because the one thing most of those guys had in common is, in fact, if there was other than Bootsy Thornton um, and and Labapo Stone, I mean, we didn't really have great three point shooters. And the way the game has evolved, is you need some of those guys. But um, you know, I. I I, I take back. I don't think you'd have too many, but you got to make sure the different types of players. Obviously, St. John's had seen its glory days in the '80s, and then early '90s they had made an Elite Eight as well. But there was a good decade where it was pretty dry, and then you take over the '98, '99 team, and as you said, and go all the way to the Elite Eight as a three seed of the tournament. You beat Samford in the first round, Indiana in the second round, Maryland the two seed of the Sweet Sixteen. And then you play a classic against Ohio State in the Elite Eight. What are your fondest memories about that run, which is still the last time St. John's has gotten that far in the tournament? Well, you know, anytime you go, I mean, just getting in the tournament is an accomplishment. Winning in the tournament is a big award. Going to the Elite Eight Final Four is, I mean, you can't get any better than that. So, you know, my my recollection was is that we belong. We really, sh I thought we should have been a one or a two seed, to be honest with you. But, um, you know, nothing wrong being a three seed. Um, the unfortunate part is, is that we played against a team that was very much, in some ways, similar. Had a great point guard in Scrooge Penn, had an, an, a prolific scorer in Michael Red at Ohio State. They had a big guy that could block shots, uh, Johnson. And, uh, you know, so we played, we, we matched up pretty well. And, and in fact, like I said, I really think we should, we had a better team, but they played better that night. They ended up beating us by three. They go to the Final Four, we go home. But it's an Elite Eight performance, and, you know, the city is back, locked into St. John's basketball again. What were those days like to have brought the magic of the 80s and early 90s back to, to St. John's? How did that feel? Well, it felt great because almost just about every one of our home games was in Madison Square Garden, and I think that's what they're going to do again with Rick Pitino. But, um, you know, the Knicks were down. We were up. We were the team of the city. And, uh, you know, we were the team that people really could root for because they, they knew we had a pretty good chance of winning there. We were a team they could bet on because they were brought in <laughs> most of the time. And I learned real early that a lot of the folks sitting in the, in the stands on their phones. They're not talking to their girlfriends or their wife. They're talking to their bookie. So, uh, you know, we, we were we were a very popular team because we helped a lot of people in a lot of different ways. <laughs> that is a, a great way to put it. Now everybody can swipe on their phone and bet on their phones. But back then, you had to know somebody who knows somebody. You got to ask somebody on the phone, et cetera. Did you ever run into anybody that was upset or ecstatic that you helped them out financially? Well, you know what? It's really funny. Uh, the one year, one we went to the, to the SLA tournament three out of the five years, and the other year, we, the fourth, we went to the IT and won it. But the one year that we didn't make the postseason tournament, my family, we went to uh, Las Vegas uh, to watch the opening rounds of the uh, tournament. And I'd never done that before. And uh, I wasn't experienced. We walked in and I, I got a stand ovation by this one group. They said, Coach, we love you. We covered every game that you coached. And uh, so that was the first time I'd ever experienced that. But uh, <laughs> what a feeling that was, you know. 
The following year, you have another good group of guys, and it's the now-famous, legendary run-through-the-Big-East tournament, and this one in 2000. And the Big East was rough and tumble back then, just like it was in the 80s and 90s. You guys have to get through a gauntlet, but you beat Villanova in the quarterfinals. You beat Miami in a close game in the semifinals. Oh. And then and then you have UConn in the championship game. And in the middle of having to play all these great teams, you've got friction going on in the locker room. You've got teammates that don't like one another. And you're trying to navigate this ship. How crazy was the 2000 Big East tournament? It was so crazy that I should have written a book about just that season. And I think somebody might have uh, actually made it into a film. It was a, it was truly a circus. Uh, and I was supposed to be the ringmaster, uh, controlling or at least trying to keep all my uh, my that my people in in, in line. But uh, it was incredible. And as much as the guys fought off the court, they fought just as hard for each other on the court. I never saw anything like it in my life. I mean, guys could be at each other's throat about not getting a pass or getting a shot or whatever. And yet at the same time, they're playing like championship uh, uh, brotherhood on the court. Uh, you know, Eric Barkley, Blucci Thornton, they get into the thing, but they, they, they loved each other because they, they won together and they knew what it took to win. And um, yet at the same time, there was a lot of friction. I mean, I used to have, you know, they say count to 10. I think I used to count to 20. And uh, <laughs> And, you know, we, Father Marv was a priest with the team at the time. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of times I'd call him out uh, to midcourt during practice to sort of pray with the guys and get us back in track again. I mean, it, it was, it was unreal. I mean, some people would say it was surreal. It was unreal. Eric Barkley, Boosie Thornton, they get into it during the Big East tournament. Barkley says, I don't want to play anymore. I'm out of here. And the team goes, no, 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 no. We can't let you go. How do you mediate that in the middle of the Big East tournament? That seems incredible to have to try to, to mediate in the middle of trying to win a tournament. Only, only with the help of the good Lord were we able to get through that. In fact, uh, the night of the Miami game, Eric and Bootsy got into it at halftime. Uh, Eric, uh, Almost didn't come off at the second half, but he did. The two of them played incredibly down the stretch. Uh, Anthony Glover makes the biggest free throws of his life. We beat Miami, who had a great team, and uh, we advanced to play Connecticut, who we beat twice already. Uh, we knew we could beat them. So we're supposed to practice in the garden on the day of the, of the championship game. And I said, we can't go to the garden. It's going to be a total ridiculous surplus. I talked to Eric's mother. She talks to Eric. Eric talks to me. I said, listen, have them come to the practice. We're going back to St. John's. We're not practicing in the garden. We're going to go back to St. John's. We went back to St. John's. We had a team meeting that took the place of our practice. Uh, I went around the room and asked the guys, uh, you know, to basically uh, say whether or not they wanted them to come back. But, you know, it's really funny. I, Eric Barkley, earlier that year, had given me a bracelet with the with the letters WWJD on it and stands for what would Jesus do and during that time in the locker room I said I don't know what to do dear Lord help me I looked down at my hand and I see this bracelet that Eric had given me and I says guys what would Jesus do would he have Eric come back on the team and I went around the room and every single person in that room said coach 
we got to have Eric back. Let him give him another chance. And I did. We said, so I then said, practice is over. We're not practicing. This has probably been a blessing. We got some rest, which we need, because nobody slept the night before. So we went to Dante's. We had our traditional Italian meal. We got hopped on the bus. We drove into Madison Square Garden. We arrived. We went out. We kicked Connecticut butt. And uh, we won the Big East Championship. It was exhausting. It was probably the most exhausting weekend and yet one of the best weekends of my life and felt so good and so drained at the same time. And, uh, and then the next day, the whole team, Eric, Bootsy, everybody, we all got together. I think we celebrated. I think we watched the selection show at uh, ESPN Center, at ESPN uh, Restaurant, whatever, in, in Manhattan, and uh, got ready for the tournament. But as you had also alluded to, the NCAA was was also knocking at your door. And you know that's got to be another huge part of your emotional exhaustion. How did that fold into that season? Well, that season was, the NCAA was out to get, they were on a witch hunt. And I will say this, I said it then, I'll say it now. There was a witch hunt going on. They were going after some of the top uh, AAU programs and former players in the country, Eric Barkley and the uh, Postel happened to be two of those guys. So it wasn't the first time. In fact, Eric had been taken off the court on a couple other occasions while they were, quote-unquote, investigating. And um, so we dealt with this, that's a, that distraction the whole season. And even up until, even after we got into the tournament, the day we were to leave to travel out west, uh, to play back in back then they didn't see you close to home so they gave us the furthest destination to go to with a tough tough road to get through and uh, so we travel out west but the day we're supposed to travel the NCAA calls Eric and LeBar in to meet with them so even on the day after we got after we got in the tournament and we're getting ready to go out we're still being hounded by the NCAA and I what I should have said after the interview on CBS was we didn't lose okay to Gonzaga, we lost to the NCAA because I really think that that's who cost us that opportunity. That's another team that could have gone to a Final Four. You guys were a two-seed that year. That's the last time St. John's would be seated that high. That's now 20-some-odd years ago, so it's been a long time since you guys, that program's been that good. You ran into Gonzaga, you lost with a round of 32. Do you feel like the NCAA investigations, et cetera, distracted your team? Do you feel like emotionally it was just such a, a heavy season that you guys were exhausted? Or do you think that you got screwed by how they placed you so far away from home? All of the above. All of the above. Um, kids were physically, mentally, emotionally drained. Uh, we played a, an excellent Gonzaga team coached by one of the best coaches in college basketball, Coach Few. Uh, they had a great team. Uh, they were playing at home. It was a home game for them. In fact, we barely got by the first game against Arizona. Uh, uh, it was Arizona. Northern Arizona. Northern Arizona. Uh, La Postel hits a, a, a shot at the at the buzzer, basically, to beat them. Uh, they We should have been a one seed that year, uh, to be honest with you. We had gone undefeated during the month of, month of February. We beat uh, Duke, Syracuse, Connecticut in one week. Okay, and during the month of uh, February, uh, we 
uh, basically, like I said, we, we were sent out west. We had officials from the west. I mean, everything that could have uh, gone against us went against us, and we still almost won the game. These are some of the great years of St. John's basketball, and the Big East is loaded. Syracuse is good. UConn's great winning a national championship and then another coming up there shortly. Villanova's always good. You guys are excellent. What are those battles like? Uh, Georgetown was very good. What are those battles like when the Big East was the original Big East? Nothing like it. Um, you know, people, uh, I, and I remember back to the original, original Big East when uh, it was basically the Catholic schools. Um, but at the time, at that time, it was as good as it's ever, ever been. And you mentioned all those schools. You didn't even mention Miami, who was loaded. And uh, so we had, I mean, no, we had, I mean, just up and down the line. I mean, you know, Providence wasn't ranked as like they are now, but they were good. Uh, you know, it was a, it, it was a, I mean, every night you knew you were going to war. The Troy Bell BC teams were also excellent. I mean, the, the depth. Yes, yes. Great yep. teams, great players, yes. It's intense. So at this point, you know, you, you have had some success, but you're also, I'm sure, feeling the pressure of the NCAA and trying to keep guys together, et cetera. You seem like such an even keel guy. I've seen you raise your voice at officials, but nobody else. And so how, <laughs> how, how are you keeping centered in the middle of, New York, the pressure of winning, the NCAA, how are you staying sane? Like I said, only through the grace of God and my incredible family, my wife, Connie, um, you know, basically I give her the, the most of the credit for, for basically uh, uh, putting her hand on the rudder of the ship and keeping it going as straight as it could go. You know, I had my son with me as my assistant, and uh, so we still had the fam. The family was together. We tried to treat our team like a family. Um, I had some, like I said, some incredible kids, you know, I mean, I, you know, I talked to, for example, Anthony Glover almost every, we talk often, um, just, uh, you know, when I communicate with some of the other guys, just talked to Ron Test the other day and, you know, so, I mean, we had a, we had, we tried to make it as much of a family as we could at a time when it was very difficult to do that. Over the next couple of years, you never quite hit the apex that you did those two years. The NCAA is obviously consistently swirling. You've had some issues with some players off the off the floor, and now the pressure is mounting. You guys do get back to an NCAA tournament, but you don't win a game. You go to the NIT and win the NIT championship, but it does feel like there's a lot of turmoil going on. How would you kind of explain uh, and remember those next two or three seasons? Well, the one thing, you, you know, you learn in uh, the longer you're in this business is that you're only as good as your last game. And sometimes that isn't even good enough. You know, I remember first getting to St. John's and there were people that were close to the program who say, you know, we have won a championship here since we won the NIT back in whatever year it was. And I remember winning the NIT and then people saying, well, you know, that's not quite good enough. It's not the NCAA. So sometimes good isn't good enough. And I think that's where we were. That's the position we were in at the very end. And then we had uh, one losing season. We ended up, I think, 14 or 15, um, the year that Omar Cook and uh, Kyle Cup and Willie Shaw and those guys were freshmen. Had a very good group of guys, had a nice nucleus of players that would be around, we thought, for a while. And uh, 
but you know, we, we didn't have, uh, we, we had recruited and had got a commitment and got, uh, Darius Miles, who was one of the top, maybe the top player in the country was coming to St. John's. And even though I didn't think he would end up coming cause he, I thought he'd be a lottery pick and sure enough, he was, he was like the sixth pick person picked in the NBA draft. If he comes to St. John's, God knows what would have happened. We had the, the makeups, even though it would have been mostly freshmen, we could have been a, you know, a team in the Elite Eight, Final Four, who knows. Um, so, you know, it doesn't take much to throw things off. And, and when people are used to winning at the highest level, that's what they expect and that's what they want. So when we got off to a fourth start in the 2003-04 season, um, you know, there some of the boos and some of the fire jobs cut chance had continued. And unfortunately, uh, at the same time, you know, my relationship with the president of the school uh, was going south, and uh, when that happens, you know, it's just a matter of time. Looking back on it, with when players got into trouble away from the court, ultimately you were exonerated by the NCAA, but it was seen that, you know, maybe problems under you with other assistant coaches and players when they were on their own time. Do you feel, looking back, like, you know, you could have done more to control some of those situations, or were those things that were beyond your control? Well, I think, you know, what probably the answer to that is both. I mean, I think there's always more you can do. Uh, but at the same time, there are certain things, no matter how much you do, you just have no control over. And, uh, you know, things get magnified. And when you're in New York City, everything's bigger than life. So I, I think most places it wouldn't have been a big deal what went on. You know, in fact, that was a time when there, we had a couple of guys off the cool with smoking pot. Nowadays, heck, you know, they... I think they pass out joints in, in school, but, uh, <laughs> so it's a different ball game, uh, but at the same time, you got to deal with the cards you dealt. You've got to try to deal with them the best you can. And yeah, there's more I could have done. Sure. Uh, I, maybe I could have made a couple of changes, you know, even on our staff for that matter, a couple of changes as far as players. I sh maybe it was a couple of guys I should have convinced to transfer it, but, um, you know, it was a different time, a different era. And, uh, you know, I mean, I do I have regrets? Sure. Do I wish I had done things a little differently? Sure. And, uh, you know, you, I mean, we won 107 games in the five years. Uh, St. John's took away, uh, you know, uh, some of those games. They vacated some of those games against a, a false claim that eventually the NCAA said wasn't there. And um, I regret not having at, at that time gone after those games because I think it really hurt me, uh, my future going forward, to be honest with you, you know, people look at your record and they, just like the other day, I think in the New York paper, it had me listed as, you know, a record of like 66 and 61. We were 107 weeks. And, uh, I think that made a big difference. And then the perception that there was, there was more problems than there probably really was never really helped. It's interesting because Jay Wright, whose reputation obviously holds a lot of weight in the industry has always vouched that you're the classiest coach that he's ever known, that you always <laughs> did things the right way, that the, you were there was never an air of anything untoward with how you did business. So do, do you feel like, I don't know, it's unfair that you have, you have games that were voided, vacated, when mostly your reputation is incredibly, incredibly clean and sterling? Uh, yeah, it, it's, and you know what, you just mentioned the guy that, I mean, we helped break him into the coaching business. I remember Jay when he first came from Hofstra and we would play against his teams and 
he was always, a, we talk about a class guy. I mean, for him to say that I was, I mean, that's after Jay Wright. I mean, it, it, nobody, nobody was more, had more class and still does than Jay Wright. And, uh, just the fact that he would say those kinds of things, um, mean a tremendous, a lot to me. And if, you know, if I, it, regrets, yeah, you know, I, I, I probably should have soon changed John's back then got those wins back and maybe things would have been a little bit different, but I didn't because I didn't think it was the right thing to do. I only mention it now because, you know, once again, I, I feel like those teams, those players that I talked about, you know, the Glovers, the, the Barclays, the, the, you know, Artes, all those, I don't think they ever got the credit that they deserved for being as good as St. John's teams as they were. And it's almost like there are still a lot of people that you know, when you think of St. John's, they only think of the Luke kind of second days and they forget about our days. And the only thing that we didn't do that those teams did was get to the final four. And that if we had got to the final four, we would have accomplished everything that they did. I mean, three NCAA tournament appearances, lead eight, Big East tournament champion, NIT champion. I mean, wow. I mean, those were some incredible years. I and mean, I just hope someday that they'll recognize those kids those teams for what they did and not for what, you know, maybe one or two people thought they did. Some critics have said that you could have done more developing relationships with high school coaches, high school pipelines in New York City. Looking back, do you think that's a fair critique? No, it's not. And I say it's not because I remember there was a time I spoke at uh, to New York coaches at a, at a clinic at one of the local high schools, which I tried to do every time I could. And I remember saying at that one of those meetings that, that you know, a lot of kids, a lot of the kids that uh, they coach, they might, they want to, they should consider also sending them uh, to uh, junior colleges. And then they might have a better chance of moving on. So it wasn't like, you know, um, I didn't want to recruit New York kids. I just knew that there were a lot of kids that needed some more seasoning. And also, I mean, you looked at, at our roster, even at the very end, you saw, it, it was a lot of New York kids uh, on our roster, uh, to be honest with you. But once again, sometimes a lot isn't enough. We now have Rick Pitino take over this job, and there's massive pressure right from day one. So what's the key for Pitino to win in New York? What do you have to navigate that well, he's done really well other places, but it hasn't been New York City. He tried the Knicks. That didn't work. What, what's what's the unique challenge of trying to win at St. John's for Rick? Well, honestly, Rick's won everywhere he's ever been. I mean, he's going to win at St. John's. Make no mistake about it. And I think the landscape of college basketball now is probably more favorable for New York for St. John's than at any other time in history. And that is with the um, the portal, where players now you can go out and recruit guys, and then guys are playing six years in college. So you can get a seasoned veteran who has had success somewhere else that wants to be in the big heights of New York. NIL, that the money that they're playing some of these players today, and some of the players are making more than coaches. So, you know, you can legally pay players now. And, um, you know, uh, I used to think a long time ago, I thought St. John's was cheating. I thought they were paying players. Come to find out they weren't play, paying players. What they were doing is they were giving them the stipend uh, that were to, uh, for a living expenses. So that's why in the old days, the kind of second, Luke kind of second days, players, they had automobiles, they had cash in their pocket. As they lived in home, they got the stipend. Well, now you can give players, I mean, boatloads. 
So I, I think that the, the climate and the, the culture is now very, very favorable, more favorable now than ever in the history of St. John's basketball. So Luke, uh, Rick Pitino's going to do well, make no mistake about it, and because the man can coach with the best of them, always has. Uh, back to first time I ever was really tempted with a head coaching job was when he was at BU. And he said, hey, if you and Patrick come to BU, you could be the next head coach at Boston University. So Rick was always ahead of his time, and uh, he'll do well, trust me. St. John's has only made one NCAA tournament berth since 2015, so that's eight years going on nine, and they were at 11 seed. So to think big is something that's been pretty foreign, but is it fair to think big like Elite Eight or Final Four if Rick Pitino decides to invest a couple of years at St. John's? I think it is, and I think it's possible, and I think it, I wouldn't be surprised if it happened, to be very, very honest with you. Because, uh, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot. I mean, just look at some of these teams. You don't have to, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to get a player from a big, big-name program. Look at Michigan State, the little point guard that was playing for them that almost led them to the Elite Eight. He was a, he was a play. He played at Northeastern University in that, you know, uh, a, a mid-level, mid-Division one conference. Um, so, you know, you just got to get the right people to fit the right pieces at the right time. You have written three books, Skills for Life, Everybody Needs a Head Coach, and the most recent, The Seven C's of Leadership. Throughout all these stories that you've been wonderfully generous in sharing with us, I'm sure you have tapped in to those seven C's quite a bit. So what are the seven C's and how do they help guide you through your, your coaching career? Well, the first of the seven C's is confidence. And it's not just the confidence that you have in yourself and your your surrounding network, but the confidence you have in God that he's going to be with you and that he'll never forsake you. So it's really heavily based in, in, in that faith and that ten. Um, confidence is number one. Courage. You gotta you gotta be courageous. You gotta be willing to fight through adversity. You gotta be willing to get back up and you've been knocked down. And in the way in which most of us are you get courage is through words of encouragement. You know, people speaking into our lives, telling us that we can be successful, we can win a championship, we can do this. So encouragement, courage is number two. The third C is uh, commitment, making that commitment to being the very best that you can be, trying to fulfill your God-given talents. So commitment and then character. You know, you can't, you know, you can't think things, speak things, do things without, uh, without character. So character is three or four. Then, uh, uh, communication, the ability to be able to communicate what you're thinking to basically be able to, to inspire and lead other people, um, through your words and your actions, uh, community building a team, a strong team, um, a, a family. Um, you know, that's what community is all about, building a family, uh, a sharing winning family. Um, uh, coach, uh, you know, being either a, a coachable person, player, or basically being the person that's coaching, being either the mentor or the mentee. And, um, and then everything all comes back. Like I said, all those scenes go together. And if you basically can, can do most of those, or a lot of those, you got a good chance of basically being a pretty good leader. Yeah. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing to list it out like that and to think about how holistic that approach can be. And, and that book is available on Amazon right now. You can order that. 
We've got Father's Day coming up in a little over two months, so that could be a very good present for dad or a coach in your life or somebody you think that could use that. When you are dismissed at St. John's, it's in the middle of the season. You become the first Big East coach ever that was not fired at the end of the season. That's obviously, yeah, not not a title that you want to carry, but with all of this wisdom that you're bringing to the table, did you have to tap into that when you're dealing with what you felt at the time, and I'm sure you still do, was an unfair early dismissal that season? You know what? I still did. I still have to tap into it, and I, I will have to tap into it until the day I die. And, uh, you know, I really felt, and, and I feel like, I, for example, I could go, I could coach right now. I could coach for another 10 years. I could coach until I was 90 years of age, and, and I think I'd be very, very good at it. And I'm just being honest. Um, you know, I was good at what I did. I loved what I did, and I missed what I did. But at the same time, I also know that, you know, uh, our plans, we make plans, God laps. And, uh, you know, sometimes the things that we think we're supposed to be doing, God's got other plans for us. So I've got to continue to prepare myself for what is next. And, you know, so right now, you know, I'm trying to develop, a, get a little more speaking opportunities. I'd love to be able to go out and talk and share, whether it's the seven C's or the tenants and everybody that had coached or skills for life. Um, you know, I'd love talking to teams, to, to players. And uh, so if you know anybody that's looking for somebody to come in and be a, a, a keynote speaker or a inspirational leadership type of material, uh, uh, I'm available. You could be my agent, okay? Okay. <laughs> I will take you up on that offer because uh, I know that you've got a lot of great wisdom to share with a lot of people. And the website is coachmikejarvis.com. And you can see the, the two books that we mentioned before, Skills for Life, and Everybody Needs a Head Coach there. And also a link for contacting coach for speaking engagements, et cetera. You did end up at FAU after St. John, six seasons at FAU. And hey, if there was another stop after the craziness of New York, Boca Raton is not bad in the winter. So you landed a, a pretty good spot there, coach. Well, I went there not to coach. I went there to live. My wife wanted and I wanted to live somewhere relatively close on this side of the country. So we chose Florida. We ended up in Boca Raton. We now live in Boynton Beach, but it was a great move then. It still is. I look, my wife loves it here. I love it here. And, um, you know, when I left New York, um, I was, my plans were, and I went to ESPN, worked for a few years, worked with uh, Fox Sports, did some games. Um, you know, so I, I stayed in it. And then uh, what happened was a few years after I moved to uh, Boca, the job at Florida Atlanta opened up. And at, time, at that time, it wasn't a very good job. Uh, we helped to make it a little bit better, and Dusty May has made a great job. So, um, you know, it's great to see how well they're doing. And, uh, you know, and I mean, no one would have ever believed that Florida Atlantic could be in the Elite Eight and one game away from the Final Four. They could be the next version of what it would be, George Mason, and there's, uh, I forget who else, but, you know, they, they could be in the Final Four. That's amazing. Yeah, the VCUs and those mid-majors, yes, said George correct. Mason. That's got to be, in, in many ways, fulfilling, gratifying to see the program ascend after how you helped build it up. Well, you know what? Uh, it really is. And I, I, I wish I could take more credit for the success they're having right now. That belongs to, you know, their new AD, uh, Mike Mr. White, and uh, and Coach May. And they've done an incredible job. They they got a couple of really, really good transfers that fit the program really well, and they put to, he's put together a great team, 
and uh, you can tell how well they're coached. I mean, any team that wins 34 ball games, I mean, my goodness, they're really good. And uh, they got some they got some great players on that team, but he's a fantastic coach and uh, don't know how long he'll be at FAU, uh, be there for as long as he wants to be. But I know some big, big name, big money schools got to be coming after that guy. The Seven Seas of Leadership is the latest book by Coach Mike Jarvis. It's available on Amazon right now. Again, CoachMikeJarvis.com is his website. The last time St. John's won the Big East Tournament, he was on the sideline. The last time they went to the Elite Eight, he was on the sideline. And really, the last glory years of this program, he was on the sideline. So we'll see if Rick Pitino can match what Mike Jarvis did 20 years ago. Coach, this has been so fun, and you've been so kind with your time on my show earlier as well before we've had a chance to speak so Thanks again for for stopping on by, and uh, I appreciate you sharing some of those stories with us. That was great. Well, thank you very much for having me. And so, like I said, it's nice to know that a few people still remember that uh, I'm alive and that I once coached at St. John's, and that we had a lot of success. And um, you know, I I, I I followed Rick Pitino at Boston University back back in the in the '80s. Uh, he had he had been coaching there, and uh, in fact, I used to bring my high school teams over to watch his teams practice. Learned a lot from him, took some of his drills, some of the things he's probably still doing. And one of the things I remember taking from Rick Pitino, I was watching his Louisville team practice one day in Louisville before a TV broadcast, and I noticed that how his voice carried throughout the entire gym during the practice, and he had a little microphone on, and I copied that from him and started miking myself up for practices. What a difference a little thing like that could make. So young coaches can learn a lot from the legendary coaches like Big Patino. I learned some things back in the day, learned some things even not that long ago. He will do well, trust me. And uh, think the players that played at St. John's love St. John's. And, you know, I, I hope that he'll reach out to those guys and uh, connect with them because they want to connect with the program. That's really well said. Great to end on that note. Coach, thanks so much again. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, anytime. Really cool conversation with Mike Jarvis, with Patino back, back in New York. There's juice with the Johnnies, so good to get some perspective on what it would take to win and St. John to the challenges that are involved, and Jarvis has some stories, huh? Time now for emails. Send us emails about the pod, nyaccentpod at gmail.com. This one comes to us after the Otis Anderson interview in episode two from Papa Pat. DA, I've lived in North Myrtle Beach, South Carolina for the last 33 years, but I grew up on Long Island. And in 1990, that's when I moved. I was a big Giants fan, so I enjoyed the stories Otis shared and his grinded-out attitude. Definitely fewer players like those these days that are willing to do what he did. Would love to see such a great person of his character eventually get the call from Canton. I'll be pulling for him. Yeah, no doubt about it. That episode really resonated with a lot of listeners because, you know, Otis has a really good Canton candidacy. And I listed during the interview, I mean, how many touchdowns he scored compared to other now Hall of Famers, how many yards he's rushed, more than guys that are in the Hall of Fame now. And he's got a Super Bowl MVP, an Offensive Rookie of the Year, a couple of Pro Bowls in there. So the guy's got a resume, and, and I'm hoping one day that he gets in as well. Another email to nyaccentpod at gmail.com. This is from Jordan and Nyack. DA, enjoy the conversation with Joe Klecko, episode three. 
including about the airplanes flying so low at Shea. Why do you think that that doesn't sound so loud anymore at City Field? Jordan, this is a great question. I don't know. Going to City Field, I'm always thinking back to the old Shea Stadium days where it's so freaking loud as the planes come over for LaGuardia. My guess is they changed flight patterns so that they weren't as low around the stadium as they landed. Or maybe just jets these days are a lot a lot quieter. The technology advanced and engines aren't as loud. Something changed because we all know, I mean, when we were at Shea in the 80s and 90s and those, those planes came over, it was like ear splitting. And now, you know, you, you hear them, but it's nowhere where it used to be. Appreciate the emails, guys. Like I said, nyaccentpod at gmail.com. All right, that'll wrap it up here. Subscribe to the podcast. Search for New York Accent, wherever it is that you get your podcast. Hit subscribe, rate, and review it. That would help other people find the podcast when it pops up on their feed. Thanks once again for listening to this episode. We'll see you next week for episode five. This is New York Accent. I'm DA Damon Amendolara. You can catch me weekday mornings on CBS Sports Radio and on weekend afternoon, Saturday afternoon on WFAN. Have a great rest of your week, everybody. We will see you next Tuesday. This is an Odyssey original podcast.